It's week three of Chris and I beating a dead horse. We're going to talk about the 1996-97 crossover between DC and Marvel once again by taking a look at the Marvel Amalgam Comics. The byword starts now. Ladies and gentle nerds, welcome to episode 165 of the Nerd Byword Podcast. I'm Dave, I'm here with my buddy Chris, and this week we are talking about the six issues uh, that Marvel produced under the Amalgam label, where we remix DC and Marvel heroes together to create one universe. But first, as always, it is time for... Chris, what's new? Dude, I think that Lucasfilm is listening to our podcast. No, um, we I think it might even been our last episode. It was a very recent episode where we talked about how much we are enjoying the Disney Plus Star Wars content, but how it feels like a, a, a square peg going in a round hole, making everything a series. Um, and now it's been revealed on a podcast that I love, Pablo Torre Finds Out. Um, a sports adjacent podcast, so so it might not be on your radar, Dave. That um, Stephen Glover, Donald Glover's brother, revealed that the Lando project is now being made into a film, um, and I just think this is a much better fit based on our previous discussions that we've already had. Um, I'm very looking forward to this. Obviously, everything uh, is hush hush. Everything has a kibosh now with the the writers and the SAG after strike. Um, Justin Simeon, who wrote Haunted Mansion, uh, was initially supposed to write it, um, but left. Um, and now Donald and Stephen Glover are taking over writing duties and judged on the reaction to the latest Haunted Mansion. That's probably for the best. Um, but in April, Donald Glover told GQ uh, on this entire project, regardless of if it's a series or if it's a film, what have you, he said, quote, I'm not interested in doing anything that is going to be a waste of my time or just a paycheck. I would much rather spend time with people I enjoy. It just has to be the right thing, which I think it could be. Lando is definitely somebody I'd like to hang out with. We're talking about it. That's as much as I can say, end quote. Um, and I'm just, again, reiterate something that uh, uh, an opinion that you and I, I know we share is how excited I am for. And I can wait. You know, I, I'm more than happy to wait. But when this does happen, I'm super excited for it because I think the world of Donald Glover, he is one of those like once in a generation, like artists, I think um, everything that I've seen of him, whether that's as Donald Glover or Childish Gambino is just it's it's like a modern day, like Renaissance artist It's it's, it's just it's just art in its highest form. I'm a huge, huge fan of his. He's extremely influential on my kids as Childish Gambino. Um, my son, um, who've you, whom you've had in class, he that's he's bound to determine he's going to be the next Childish Gambino. I told him I did. We had a big talk this week about his future career plans. Just like pump the brakes, buddy. Like I appreciate your enthusiasm, but like. So uh, I, I, I'm a huge Donald Glover fan. My entire household is. And, and I'm, I'm excited to see this and glad to see that 
they're they're willing to evolve in in as as needed when it comes to this Disney Plus Star Wars content because I'm a fan but like but like we said like it needs a it needs a little bit of tinkering and I'm glad that they're willing to do that. Yeah, and I think uh it's probably at least it's somewhat a response to the fact that uh they are uh looking at probably a real content issue on the big screen if this you know strike continues on for you know a significant uh number of months and so i'm not surprised that they're looking at some projects switching from uh, a series to a potential movie uh because otherwise they're not going to have a whole lot here in a couple of years to put on the big screen um but i think it's it's of great benefit to the project uh, you know, we've talked about this uh, quite a bit, as you've mentioned, but I think that tightening up a lot of this, these stories a little bit instead of trying to stretch them out artificially is ultimately going to be uh, a benefit to the storytelling. Um, and I, I think that that Glover as, as Lando Calrissian was a real highlight in the solo movie which you know i think is much maligned for no reason i I like it quite a bit actually it's not you know um, it doesn't necessarily stand shoulder to shoulder with something like empire strikes back or even rogue one but it is still a is very competent uh star wars movie i thought and i I enjoyed it and i would i would still like to see a sequel to that in in some capacity at least maybe we can maybe we can squeeze a a han solo cameo in there uh in the in the lando movie but i'm gonna uh, gonna shoot i'm gonna shoot i'm gonna shoot from the hip here dave in true han solo lando calrissian fashion i think we have a revisiting of that movie as an episode coming up very soon i think so and i I think it it does need some reevaluation um I, and I and I think Calrissian as a character is is really ripe for like a real exploration. As a massive expanded universe fan, I can tell you, even in the expanded universe, they never they never did enough with him as a character. Absolutely, he very much even Absolutely. in the expanded universe stayed on the periphery of the story. Now, time. now that I've read at least three of those novels, I have some some context. Yeah, I totally agree. He was very much a side character. Like and he would pop. And he would pop his up. Role, you know? His role, you could you could put anybody in that role. I don't think that was unique enough for me. What, yeah, what and, he, and he and he and he will pop stuff. up, and every time he pops up, it is in a very similar, um, a, a very similar capacity to how he was portrayed in in the actual movies. As very much sort of a a a second tier main player, you know, uh, there and present, but not as important as as the core three. And uh, so I think that that is a character that is absolutely ripe for deeper exploration, I think is a a vast untapped potential. So I'm very, very interested to see what they do with this. I always liked Lando. There's something very cool about this character that is not necessarily morally ambiguous because he does have a really strong moral core. When you look at all the stuff he does in Empire Strikes Back, he really is doing it to protect the people, you know, that that he are under him. Um, but, But a character who is very good almost in a superman like fashion of, of of wearing a particular mask you know the super suave manipulative guy and underneath is this really strong moral core i think i think there's a really interesting character to play around with and I, i'm i'm hoping that they they do him justice and i can't think of a better like casting recasting if you want to say because i i think the world of billy d williams um like charisma for days and like it's it, it can be daunting to recast obviously as as we found out in star wars but i mean like 
they kind of nailed it when it comes to Donald Glover. But um, you'll have to forgive me because I've got Starfield on the brain. Um, I was late to recording because I just can't peel myself away from it. So, um, but we have to mine resources in Starfield. That's one of the biggest features is like you build outposts and I think there is so much with the Lando character that is so much untapped potential storytelling. There is so much to mine from that character and from the actors both that have portrayed him. The sequel trilogy, that was one of the highlights for me of um, a deeply regrettable film in in most cases in, in The Rise of Skywalker. I was I was here for Lando and there's not near enough. And I want to see where that story continues to go. Now, Billy D. Williams is getting up there in age, as is Harrison Ford. But like, I'm fascinated by where that story could go. Um, I don't think we'll ever get to see that with his now daughter, perhaps. Was that confirmed? I don't even remember. I, I think it was not confirmed on screen, but it was like in one of the visual guide books or something that uh-huh. they put out. It's 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 sort of officially confirmed, but was not confirmed on screen. Yeah. Um, and then I, I'm just a huge fan of this character. And no shade to Han Solo, but he gets all the love as like the space cowboy and Lando kind of gets second billing for whatever reason. Um, especially with those capes. The cape game is strong. I love playing. Um, you know, EA gets a lot of crap for like their Battlefront games and and rightfully so. But like being able to play as Lando and having that cape flowing in the background, is there's just something perfect for me. Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, the, yeah, you know, Star Wars is definitely the place where the cape game is very strong. Period. Uh, Vader's <laughs> cape is a lot of fun too. Um, they, somehow they just knew how to use capes. A little bit of superhero in them, maybe. All right, Dave. We got some 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 drama going on in your news story. Yeah, uh, things are about to get weird, and I'm a deeply deeply conflicted about this whole situation in a, in, a, in a number of ways. Um, so. Apparently, there has been behind the scenes some conflict brewing between Bill Willingham and uh, DC Comics. Now, Willingham, of course, is probably most famous for his um, Vertigo series, Fable. Uh, Fables came back, uh, actually, recently, uh, both with a crossover between uh, Batman and Big B. Wolf, one of the characters from Fables, uh, called A Wolf in Gotham. Uh, And then an actual, like, uh, 12-issue continuation series for the long-running Fables book, uh, obviously no longer under the Vertigo imprint since Vertigo is defunct. Uh, Fables ran from 2002 to 2015 and uh, has been collected in 22 best-selling collections, has won 14 Eisner Awards, and is probably one of the biggest success stories to come out of the Vertigo imprint, uh, which is, uh, let's be honest, probably as far as like creativity at the big two, probably the best imprint that that ever existed. Like Vertigo is just something deeply special um, to this day. Um, so so Fables is a, a big deal. And so it coming back was a big deal. Um, but uh, conflict has been brewing behind the scenes. And now Willingham has actually... Um, come out and made a statement online that due to conflict with uh, DC Comics, uh, he is putting fables into the public domain. Now, a lot of stuff that came out through Vertigo ran under a 
uh, contract uh, that is not uh, sort of a freelance hire contract, but more uh, more of a creator-owned contract. Although these contracts are deeply complex, and it is not exactly clear if Willingham truly has the right to do this. Uh, DC Comics has come out since with a official statement. Corporate statements from DC Comics like this are extremely rare. Um, And the statement reads, uh, and I quote here, the fables, comic books, and graphic novels published by DC and the storylines, characters, and elements therein are owned by DC and protected under the copyright laws of the United States and throughout the world in accordance with applicable law and are not in the public domain. DC reserves all rights and will take such action as DC deems necessary or appropriate to protect its intellectual property rights. Uh, Now, it's not surprising that they would do this, uh, make a statement like this, because part of copyright protection is that you actually defend your copyright, right? So if there are challenges, you have to take action. Otherwise, um, you know, you are legally speaking, so uh, kind of like abandoning the copyright, so to speak, because you're not actively defending it. So that's not a surprising action. Uh, Willingham has since uh, posted in response uh, on Twitter uh, or X or whatever you want to call it this week. Twi- Twix. Uh, Twix. 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 Let's call it Twix. I like this. <laughs> Twix. Okay, so he posted on Twix. Uh, Several questions have poured in over Fables rights. No, this does not include the rights to reprint previously published Fables books and stories. And if you come out with your own Fables books, others couldn't decide to reprint them. Create your own is the new order of things. Uh, no, I'm in not in any way soured on fables, and I'll ha- uh, happily still sign fables books and talk fables at cons. I'm just soured on a certain publisher that joined the dark side. Um, the comic book industry has, ha- uh, you know, professionals have had interesting reactions to this, with many uh, jumping onto on the you know you go guy sort of approach um, because you know. We're talking still about corporate comics here, and it is definitely, um, you know, popular to 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 take a dump on those. And especially since so few creators retain rights or get proper payments for anything that they produce, even if it is actually used, uh, even on like big screen projects, you know, uh, the the original creators really don't see anything from that. So Willingham taking one of the biggest things that DC Comics has probably produced. Uh, in the last few decades and, and, and dumping that into the public domain as a way of getting back at them feels from that perspective, really nice. Um, However, uh, there is another side to this and that is that Willingham is an incredibly political individual, uh, arguably rabidly right wing in his approach to politics um, and oftentimes has started, you know, increasingly, uh, you know, running that through a lot of his works. Um, and, uh, you know, almost, I, I'm not one of those people that says I can't get along with, you know, people who have a different persuasion of me politically. However, his 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 particular brand of politics is very, um, let's say, abrasive, um, derogatory, attack-based, um, he makes uh, a lot of derogatory comments towards, um, you know, liberal politics in particular. Um, I recall a post online that he made comparing wearing white, wa- uh, white masks uh, due to COVID-19, uh, making the comparison to wearing, uh, you know, Ku Klux Klan hoods, basically. Um, so there is definitely a, a sort of abrasive political undercurrent uh, running through a lot of what Willingham does in recent years. 
And it is potentially possible that within that is actually part of one of the reasons that he is doing this because DC Comics has uh, in its publishing line probably a more liberal slant to a lot of the things that they have been doing. And so there is speculation that at least part of the reason he's doing this is not about standing up so much for creators' rights, but making some kind of grand political statement. And from, from that perspective, the whole thing feels just a notch ickier. Um, and I will freely admit as an individual uh, who has you know all of the Fables collections on my shelf, uh, the book is, is very, very good and deserves the accolades that has gotten. Um, the writing is strong. The storytelling is interesting. Um, and even though, you know, characters will say things that Bill Willingham is very much putting into their mouth uh, to make a political statement, those things are at least consistent with the characters in whose mouths he's putting it. That There is also the additional wrinkle to all of this, that Fables is based on fairy tale characters that are essentially from, you know, from Grimm's fairy tales and are already in the public, public domain, domain, right? Right. So so there is that additional wrinkle there. He's already created a work here that is based on public domain characters. So this is probably cruising towards an extremely complex legal battle that is getting ready to start between DC Comics and Bill Willingham. And although you want to stand up at saying yay for creators' rights, there are certainly other things at play here that make it much more difficult to cheer for one party or the other. Um, so one way or another, this is this is a very interesting news story, very, very complex one that we'll definitely have to keep an eye on. It's very difficult to decide where, um, you know, standing up for creators' rights, you know, ends and politics begins in this particular situation. One way or another, um, there is definitely something brewing here that could have implications for uh, comic books and the industry moving forward if this actually goes all the way into the court system, Chris. And the, and this came on my radar uh, because I follow someone that you and I are both a big fan of, Jamal Eigel. Um, and so I saw this on his social media feed and he posted posted the original new, the, the Bill Winningham substack and said, oh, well. <laughs> and then in follow-up posts, he said, quote, the amount of ignorance a lot of creatives are showing about what's permissible by copyright and trademark is stunning. And then a follow-up post a couple hours later said, oops, I guess he forgot that he only has half the rights to the copyright. So there's there's so much to unpack here. Um, because you know, as he states, you know, like uh, when it comes to the publishers, you have the artists that are involved. And it's it's funny because there are so many conservatives that want to talk about virtue signaling in comics and in popular media. But then they turn around and do the exact same thing that they accuse others of doing. Um, it, It's it's. This is also an episode, Dave, where we're getting ready to talk about your boy, Chuck Dixon. And I say that in jest, your boy. I, I, I do not ascribe him to, to you. And it's, it's really fascinating to see predominantly white, male, straight, conservative creators aging over the past 10 to 15 years. And there's, there's a political science 
you know, thing that's bandied about a lot with the great replacement theory of how straight white males fear of being replaced by women, by minorities. And so as a reaction to that, they become sensitive and abrasive and attack based. And so, you know, in so for so many reasons in the past five or six years, politics has become even more catastrophic and chaotic than it was even before before that. Political discourse is dead on arrival in most cases. Um, and it, it's unfortunate to see so many creators that we grew up with falling victim to this. And so this is going to be a, watch, a fascinating thing to develop for a multitude of reasons. And look, there are definitely a couple more wrinkles that I want to add to this uh, very quickly. First, um, Stuart Moore uh, was uh, an editor at Vertigo, and uh, he pub- he actually put a statement on Facebook. And he said, uh, initially, his first post was, why is everyone dumping on Bill Willingham? He's publicizing a dispute with a big corporation. I helped review those Vertigo contracts in the early 90s, and I can tell you they're complicated, uh, and complicated all caps. But then later came back and and said, edited to add, I'm reliably informed there's another whole side to the story that isn't currently being commented on. So A, the the contractual situation here is definitely complex. And B, there is probably another shoe that's going to drop at some point. Um, And I think the other thing just to mention here is that, you know, I think that you're exactly nailing, uh, you're hitting the nail on the head when you say that uh, political discourse is dead on arrival these days. Um, I can tell you that when when Fable was actively running uh, in in the early 2000s and, you know, everybody was talking about it, uh, Willingham was Willingham, right? I mean, he he put in, you know, a whole thing in in Fable about, you know, basically a pro-Israel message in there. And and people took note of that, and they were like, "Well, okay, that's just you know Willingham putting his, his thoughts in there." And then you know people moved on and kept following the story. That so there is a, there is definitely a sense that what worked even you know even twenty years ago is not really something that people gravitate. People towards are anymore. people aren't as willing, and and this is this is one thing that I absolutely credit Gen Z if you if you want to attribute it to them. They're not willing to put up with stuff that people just put up with twenty years ago. You know, that's, that's absolute, that's absolutely, that's absolutely accurate. And, and I think in some corners, there has definitely been a reassessment of, of fables in that light, very much to akin to what happened with something like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, you know, where, where people have taken um, to, you know, taken a much closer look at the person behind the scenes making this thing, and then kind of reassessing the actual product a little bit. And that is a very, very complex situation. And we've talked before about something how something we've done. Be. We did an entire episode on it. And and yes. the end result is we didn't get very far, unfortunately, because it's it's difficult. It's a sticky it is difficult situation. To sep- yeah, to separate the art from from the artist. And is that something you can do? And I think there's a case by case basis situation there. Um and it and it's gonna vary from person to person. So so this is this is just a very complex situation top to bottom. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 something that's going to be fascinating to see what develops as a result of it, nonetheless. Yeah, definitely something to keep an eye on. 
Alrighty, folks, there you have it. That was a lot of nerd news. Let's go ahead and take a quick break. When we come back, uh, we are going to dive into the uh, amalgam books uh, that Marvel produced uh, as part of the DC versus Marvel crossover in 1996. So stick around. Ladies and gentlemen, nerds, we're back. And this week, we got a seriously big... Yeah, we are back with our third week of DC versus Marvel, where we celebrate and revisit uh, the 1996-1997 crossover between DC and Marvel. Uh, we have, in episode 163, already reviewed the uh, miniseries DC versus Marvel pitting heroes against each other. And in episode 164, just last week, we took a look at the first batch of Amalgam comics produced at DC Comics, six issues of mixed and remixed heroes from both publishers into a cohesive universe. This week, we are turning our attention to the Marvel side of things. Marvel produced also six comics, uh, and they are Bruce Wayne, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., Bullets and Bracelets, Magneto and the Magnetic Men, Speed Demon, Spider-Boy, and X-Patrol. And uh, I am going to, for each of these books, provide a brief introduction, and then I'm going to throw it to Chris as our Marvel expert for his reactions, and we'll kind of bandy back and forth and talk about our reaction to some of these books. We're going to go ahead and start out with Bruce Wayne, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. number one, written by Chuck Dixon with art by Kerry Nord. Here's the uh, official synopsis from 1996 from Marvel Comics. Driven by the murder of his parents, a grim multi-billionaire focuses his rage by forging Amalgam's premier espionage strike force. Now Wayne and his agents have to save the East Coast from the depredations of the Green Skull. Uh, Chris, let's go ahead and dive into Bruce Wayne, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I just spit left all over my MacBook. Um, That's gross. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I think... I think this is my first Chuck Dixon book. And so it's interesting in hindsight to see, have everything that we just talked about in our new segment. And I can see the telltale signs of the journey Chuck Dixon would take over the next few decades and to why he's a problematic individual now and to why that he has aligned himself with Comicsgate. Um, there's one particular scene where there is some definitely unfortunate language um, geared towards people with handicaps, with physical handicaps, um, that is, it was a really tough read. Um, aside from that, this reads as, I think I texted you, this is almost entirely the plot for Arnold Schwarzenegger's True Lies with Jamie Lee Curtis. Like, this feels like one of those Schwarzenegger vehicles from the 90s, those action flicks, maybe a Steven Seagal film. Like, there's some espionage into it, and we just throw a superhero uh, filter through it. Um, there are some interesting elements that are developed here with the amalgamation of characters. Of We've seen Bruce Wayne's parents die umpteen times. Um, but the fact that he internalizes that and it manifests itself in a different way than just becoming Batman was interesting to see 
um seeing moon knight or whatever the amalgamation is being featured here i'm always happy to see dick grayson um there's some jason stuff a, a lot of this stuff seems like it was just put into a blender as is the case with a lot of this mal- amalgam stuff you have um like this bane character who's like no nuke who is like an amalgamation of nuke the captain america adjacent character and bane um so there's a clear delineation there you have dick grayson being like the moon knight type character which is really cool a couple of my faves being mixed together is always cool um so there's interesting elements here um jason todd is inevitably um developed here the uh the barbara and bruce romance is kind of roll your eyes but yeah it's 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 very much uh very much a product of its time um and it's it's basically one of those 90s action flicks with the hot girl on the cover um <laughs> the hot naughty girl that you're not supposed to like but you like on on the cover yeah it's 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 very much a product of its time uh it, there were enjoyable elements to it but it, it it was it was certainly something to behold yeah you know um i thought this was fine uh for what it was uh besides that moment that you've already mentioned and the the always ickiness of you know them trying to in any way shape or form pair barbara gordon uh with even in am- amalgamated form with bruce yep. wayne it yep. just feels icky feels icky it, feels, it icky feels every time it feels try. it it feels hot for teacher yeah 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 it's icky every time and i wish people would stop doing that but um other than that i thought there was you know it's kind of like how we talked about Dark Claw as like this really dumb action movie that was a lot of fun. This one was like adjacent to that, not nearly as fun, but not still as fun. Kind of, yes, yes, yeah, I, but I, still I, in the same vein of that. And I was generally, I was generally okay with this book as just a great, great, you know, big strokes. I thought there was a missed opportunity in having like some kind of forbidden love thing going on between. Uh, the Green Skull's daughter and Bruce Wayne, since you know there, Selena Kyle it's, got amalgamated in yes. there. Yep. Yeah. Yep, 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 I thought I thought that would have been more interesting in this particular situation than having this Barbara thing going on. Barbara, it's Barbara, a, very much was the same as Carol Danvers in in last week's episode. Like she's just yes. there. Yes. Um, and you know Dick Grayson having been amalgamated with Moon Knight, I thought it was actually really cool. However, he didn't seem to get any of the Moon Knightiness. Moon Knightess, like there was nothing that's like very Moon Knight, except for the except for the costume. Except he still for felt the very much like yeah. yes, he still felt very much like Dick Grayson. Um, I also thought it was really interesting all these hints that they dropped that there was like a deeper running connection between Bruce Wayne and Dark Claw, like they've had like adventures together. You know, um, like there was a mention that. Uh, Jason Todd died when the hyena tried to blow up Bruce Wayne and, and Dark Claw, right? So there's like some of these some of these untold stories are better than what we actually got. <laughs> yeah. Um and of course the fact that the uh the Green Skull basically like um faked his death, right? Is actually, you know, at least one of those things that I like about these amalgam books is when they they try to make it feel like not only it has a past, but it also has a future, right? We're in the middle of a storyline, it'll somehow continue. And so that definitely was something that they nailed here. I will say this. If this is your introduction to Chuck Dixon's writing during this era, it is not a good introduction. Um, Chuck Dixon during this era was one of the main architects of the Bat books um, and wrote just a massive amount of, for example, Birds of Prey. Uh, the entire first you know, major Nightwing run uh, was his. Uh, the uh, first 
Robin Solo run featuring Tim Drake was his. He was probably one of the singular most influential individuals on the Bat Books for a while. And despite what he may became, it's not it's a it's a difficult era to can revisit. You, can you see what he that became. though? Can you see can, what I'm saying by that? I can see definitely some tendencies in this one, yeah. But I will say, man, that early that early Birds of Prey run in particular, you know, and and how he writes the female characters in that, you know, there's the occasional misstep, sure, but like even like the slow growing relationship between between Barbara Gordon and 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 Diana Lance, you know, and and how they become these really tight friends. It's just almost like a completely different person wrote that stuff, you know. It's it's hard to, it's hard to. Um, I I I guess to 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 connect those two individuals. Somebody who is, uh, you know, apparently very pro comics gate right now versus somebody who wrote. Uh, you know, a female main character book with the kind of respect that he did for a while. You know, again, ignoring that some of that stuff is obviously going to be weird because of the era it was written in. You know, there are, there are some some really heartfelt, great moments between those two characters as they develop this deep friendship. That and it's very hard to reconcile that. Um, but as far as Bruce Wayne, Agent of Shield, it's it's fine. Um, it's not nearly as offensive as something like Assassins from last week. Cool. It's just it's just kind of there. You know, yeah, yeah, and I don't want it to come across like I'm like, hey, this is whatever. Like this is the character, this is a creator that you're having to deal with. I've had a lot of a lot of the same experiences. William Shatner is one of those people that like you love his work back in the '60s as being Captain Kirk, but then he says some really dumb stuff. Really, un you know, you're not you're not you're unfortunate not stuff. And and I'll 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 give you the ultimate ultimate trump card for a very terrible pun. Um, I was the biggest Bill Cosby fan in the world. I watched the Cosby Show every single night. I modeled being a father after him. And there's it doesn't get worse than that. Doesn't get worse than that. Um, and as you know, as a parent of of queer kids as a parent of a transgender child i used to be a big dave appel fan i can't do it anymore i can't one of the most talented comedians i can't do it anymore because my kids deserve better so it's 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 a real slippery slope and it's really tough on that note let's go into something that i i found to be a really interesting book uh on a on a whole different uh number of layers and and that is bullets and bracelets. What what, what a title for a book, <laughs> what right? A name. Bullets and bracelets, uh, which was actually written by John Ostrander, uh, most famously probably most famous probably for his uh, early Suicide Squad run, and, and with art by Gary. Oh, Frank. That makes so much one. sense. Yeah, Gary and Ga- and Gary Frank is uh, is been kind of you know a real star as far as his art is concerned, especially with some of the stuff he did. Um, on Superman a few years ago. Um, so here is the official tagline from uh, the from 1996. Uh, years ago, an unlikely romantic interlude between Trevor Castle and Diana of Themyscira produced a child. Now this punishing man and wonderful woman must unite once more to save their son from Thanoside. Um, yeah, this is really something, Chris. Uh, take it away. It's something. That's for sure. There's so much here where like... 
Diana being the flagship female character of DC Comics are like, we don't quite what you know what to do with her so we're gonna just put her in about everything <laughs> even with the punisher wonder woman and the punisher just say that like slowly and out loud yeah um this is one of the most 90s things ever um <laughs> i can't it's it's just so much the art's really great like really really great artwork um diana's just like everywhere like she's in all the things she's involved in all of this lore all of this amalgamation um and you know we have the textbook punisher origin story and you know end up they have a kid together that's been taken by granny harkness a great amalgamation of fantastic amalgamation (laughs) and agatha harkness like just peak just as 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 many folks would say, it's camp. It's just camp. Granny Harkness is just camp. And then you have this really strange amalgamation of Monarch that is Colonel James Rhodes with, I don't know, that seems like something DC that I'm not familiar with. There was a character over at DC called Monarch. Yeah. I'm assuming they went okay. straight for that, but... Okay. Uh, oh, here's another really, they were just like, we're just going to go for it. We're just going to lean into the campiness of it all. Big Titania. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's, it's something, man. It's definitely, it's not, it's not actively bad. Okay. But it is very much in the vein of a Punisher comic. It's just not, Punisher has never been a character that has, that I've vibed with just personal taste. Um, the character and the insignia has been weaponized by people that are less than desirable individuals. Um, but he's, he's fine there. You know, when I've seen him pop up in other books, it's just not one that I seek out. It's just not my cup of tea and that's okay. But I, I enjoyed this one. This was a fun run. Um, anytime I get to play around with like Greek mythology and stuff like that, it's cool. Um, I'm digging. Um, Thanos side was a little bit lazy, uh, you know, in my opinion. Uh, the There was a cool kind of twist there at the ending, especially with uh, Homie's beret. He, he wore a golden beret instead of a raspberry one. So um, his he's got a great got some great facial hair game going on and that that beret is doing serious work but um you know anytime i get new asgard i get some mythology fused in there it's cool and then you have the inevitable uh, most 90s ending ever yeah for the most part i like this one um i think there's a lot of elements here that really were interesting um although i don't think um that uh what was it burn over on amazon uh, got the message that uh, Aurora was Diana's beloved uh, uh, adopted Yes, sister. <laughs> that was interesting because yeah, Burn was like, memo there. yeah, that was very much a cat fight. Yeah, somebody did not get the memo there that they were supposed to be getting along. Um, but, uh, you know, just to recap, because I mentioned this last week already, uh, the amalgamations here are weird for a reason, because during this era at DC for a while, Wonder Woman was not Wonder Woman. Artemis won the right to be Wonder Woman, and Diana was running around in this, like, biker outfit, very much what she's wearing in this, and basically trying to superhero still without the official title of, of Wonder Woman. And so we got, I think Artemis really got 
merged with Storm for the Amazon character. And and this Diana is, this just seems to be Diana, um, to be completely honest with you. I don't even think she's really merged with anybody, at least that I can tell. Um, very much like Bruce Wayne sort of got plucked out of uh, a dual identity into a solo identity, basically. Um, but uh, I, I like the kind of setup of like these two people that have nothing in common and this like this weird little relationship that they couldn't make work. And now they're, you know, trying to save their kid. I think that's a really cool setup for, for a story. Um, the, that they went with the new God stuff. I thought was interesting. Extreme co-parenting, if you will. Yes. I think it would have been more interesting if they would have went a more grounded route with this book, uh, more street level instead of going right away, you know, we're going to go to apocalypse and all that. Um, and I found the ending interesting, but a little unsatisfying because basically they 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 had to accept that their child was raised by a bad guy and is now an adult and is also not coming home with them or anything. They still don't have a relationship with them, and there's no grieving about this lost yeah, time it's just or, or relationship. Smoochy and move on, right? So this one didn't feel the way it ended like it was um part of like this this ongoing story it felt very much like a climax or something right and and then this is the end of the end of the line um so i probably would have not ended that way i would have preferred if they you know left it a little more ambiguous or something so it felt like this is part of an ongoing story but i, th- I didn't hate this um it's fine very much like like bruce wayne agents of shield it didn't wow me or anything um, and I think this is probably going to be a pattern with a lot of these stories. Most of them are fine. Nothing is quite as atrocious as Assassins, but nothing is it's re- either which quite is really as good as, as Super Soldier, for example, or Amazon, right? Um, or even JLX. Um, JLX. And my my very favorite strong. of my favorite of all these books, Doctor Strange Fate. I still ride for Doctor Strange Fate. Uh, that one's my favorite of the bunch. Yeah, it seems like this set of books in general is just weaker compared just, to the first collection. Just mid at best. Mid yeah. at best. Um, and then everything I think was strong and at least fun last week, um, except for Assassins, is one of the most egregious things that I've ever had to read. <laughs> so you have that weighing it down. So maybe it all balances out in the end. Maybe it does. I, I don't know. Um, let's go to our next book, though. Uh, this one I, uh, again, <sighs> liked in concept, actually, although I will say that in execution it's a different story. We have Magneto and the Magnetic Men. Uh, this is by Gerard Jones and Jeff Matsuda with uh, Mark Waite credited for brainstorming assist. Here is the official tagline. Eric Magnus watched in horror as his comrades were slaughtered. Now utilizing the technology that his mutant-hating brother used to create the Sentinels, Magnus constructs five robots, each formed from a different metal, to protect his fellow homo superiors. So, Chris, as a huge X-Men fan, I'm sure that you have opinions here, so uh, let's go. This one's my greatest frustration, because there's so much here that I love of like a storytelling possibility. There's so much potential here. Like look no further than the age of apocalypse. Anytime that you put Magneto as like the protagonist, as the leader of the X-Men, as the quote unquote good guy, I'm in. I, I Magneto is far superior to Xavier as like the leader of whatever group. Um, but the end result is just sentient chemicals 
<laughs> like it's just they took the periodic table and some of it, some of the names are okay but some of them like come on cobalt just doesn't just doesn't click and then you have these weird like transformer vibes that are just out of nowhere um but there's so much potential here because i i think we talked about this last week i was so frustrated because i thought um with his brother what they established in that in that previous the, i think it's the jlx in jlx yeah yeah was his i thought that was their magneto was his brother this anti-mutant and i was so deeply offended and then found out it was his brother and i was like okay i'm in i'm in like say no more you you've got me um and so there is like a the fascinating element of the sibling rivalry and the sibling jealousy here but i don't think they capitalize on it the way that they should i think there's so much untapped potential with that um i mean he doesn't even feature in this book at all if if memory serves correctly um i read it early this morning but i don't think his brother's in this one at all like why yeah, he would he not no. do that um and then it just I, I i just became deeply frustrated with this because i think ai is such an overused thing with so many sci-fi and if you're gonna do it you gotta you gotta mind your p's and your q's and you gotta have like the best AI artificial intelligence, are they sentient? Are they actually quote unquote human is, is when you have these deep philosophical, possibly even theological discussions, like the measure of a man, like they did in the next generation with data. Is this now surpassed into sentience? You know, even he starts off as an Android and it's such such a half-hearted approach i think here um there it's just the execution leaves a lot to be desired and i wanted to love this book simply because magneto is one of my top five um he's one of my top five comic book characters one my top five fictional characters to even transcend comics um and there's so much potential here and then we've got like transformers you know mr sinister is one of the best villains in comics when done right, but now they just made him a transformer and it just, it leaves a lot to be desired. Totally agreed. Um, yeah, I think, I think the name of the game here is absolutely potential. I actually really like the idea of Magneto creating like metal, uh, you know, uh, robots to actually like, you know, assist him. I think that's actually a really cool idea uh, that, you know, I, I can't be too hard on like the fact that these robots all are named after different metals and stuff, because that's straight up just the story of the metalman. Very much. This is um, DC's metalman right here, which I didn't know was a thing that existed until you just now told me that. And it is actually, um, they're, uh, they're, they're, they're actually pretty cool characters. They just featured, in uh, Mark Waite's World Finest, in an issue of Mark Waite's World's Finest, um, and did a, had a very cool little uh, appearance there. If you ever uh, want to check that out, they just did a story about a new form of a mezo, basically that would control other artificial intelligence, um, and they featured in that story, and it was it was quite good. So they're interesting characters for sure. But you know, I like the idea that they're playing with uh, that Magneto basically controls them like puppets. And through the course of the story, they basically achieve sentience. They they can start thinking for themselves. And then they choose to continue fighting with him rather than being controlled by him. I think that's a, that's a cool basis for a story. I just don't think 
that it's as well realized here as it could have been. Um, and and I totally agree with you that the fact that uh, Magneto's brother doesn't feature in this story at all is a huge mistake since I don't recall them meeting in any of these amalgam books. So you have these two characters that are brothers, but they're like on I opposite said before, ends of the spectrum, and then they don't ever interact. And that's very strange. And like I said, some of these untold stories are better than what we are told. Yeah, yeah. Uh, some of this background stuff would be really interesting to check out. So I wholeheartedly agree. Uh, I think this is probably uh, a weaker book than Bullets and Bracelets and Bruce Wayne Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but maybe that it feels like that because there is a lot of unrealized potential in the basic setup for this one. All right, that brings us to uh, one of my favorites of this, even though, again, I think it's conceptually better than than in execution. Yes, yes. Um, and which is, I think, a, a running theme for, for this whole uh, situation right here. And that is Speed Demon number one, written... Uh, oh my goodness, there's a, there's a lot of people involved in this one. We have Howard Mackey, we have James Felder, we have Salvador LaRocca, and Al Milgram all involved in the creation of this one. Uh, the story here is the tagline, Blaze Allen teams up with his nephew Wally in a race against time and hell itself to snatch the soul of the Green Goblin. If they fail, the Night Spectre wins the keys to the Nether Realm. Um, yeah, so uh, Chris, uh, shoot off at your mouth. <laughs> this is um, this is my most pleasant surprise of both collections. I think I went in with zero expectations. I I've always enjoyed Ghost Rider stories peripherally. I have made my feelings on all speedsters of all variations quite clear but i really enjoyed this book but you absolutely nailed it conceptually it's a fascinating idea execution wise it leaves a bit to be desired it's not as egregious in my opinion as magneto and his metal men his merry metal men his um, merry metal men i like that <laughs> the uh, the only thing that is is egregious here, in my opinion, is the rhyming. Like some of this is like real nursery rhyme level stuff. Like there's a reason I for get... that, and I can get into that in a moment. <laughs> okay, well, I look forward to your reasoning there. That's the only thing that I'm like, oh god, here we go. But but everything else, like I'm I'm here for um, both Salvador La Roca. Um, I think Salvador LaRocca, I'm just going to say this. I think Salvador LaRocca is the most underappreciated artist in all of comics. Period. Oh, I, oh, oh, for sure. For sure. The most, and it's not close. No one talks about Salvador LaRocca enough. Um, to a comic that you and I will talk about till the cows come home, you know what I'm going to say. That sensational Spider-Man annual coming oh out of God. Civil War. So good. I get teared up thinking about that comic. One of the Such best single issue comics. Period. Full stop. Regardless of what was happening at the time, regardless of what, what was to come on the heels of that, one of the best single issue comics in comic books. Period. Full stop. And he's a major reason why. Absolutely. Salvador Roca. His run on Extreme X-Men with Chris Claremont is top tier. Probably the most underrated X-Men book of all time. And then you add Al Milgram as another person working on art. Come on, just come on. And like some of the character designs are goofy in nineties, but whatever, who gives a crap? Cause they're gorgeous. And the fact that we have this amalgamation of what, what are those little 
big headed guys, uh, the Green Lantern people. What are they called? Oh, uh, those are the right Guardians now. of the Universe. The Guardians. Thank you. Guardians of the Universe. You have an amalgamation of the Guardians of the Universe and Uwatu the Watcher. It's right a great on amalgamation. The first page. As a villain, take my money. It's right great, now. isn't it? It's so incredible. Um, and then you have some circus hijinks because, of course, um, and uh, there's 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 some stuff that doesn't quite hit as it should. It misses the target. But I, this was my favorite read far and away of these books. It's just so fun. Um, I, I may God help me. I may read some Ghost Rider comic books now because like this is so much fun. Yeah, it uh, that that is exactly right. I had a lot of fun with this one, um, and I love the name even Speed Demon as an amalgamation of, yes, of, of, yes, of Ghost yes. Rider and Flash. So smart, so smart. There is there is a little bit more on the DC side going on here, though, which is why I think the rhyming is driving you crazy because it is not just Flash and Ghost. I don't, Rider. It's I don't also, care. It, I don't care that it rhymes. I it, it just seems remedial in the rhymes. When I think of when I think of situations like that with incantations i'm thinking and the font nails it the font is like this old shakespearean level king james type of diction old english i just like we're rhyming things that are very 90s even yeah so uh what it is is there's a third character in there and that's etrigan the demon which is a dc comics character uh which actually in fact does rhyme constantly he only speaks in rhyme and so uh, that that's where that's coming from. Even if the rhymes are not up to snuff in this one, uh, that's just how that's just how Etrigan talks. Um, yeah, man, this is this this was just neat. Uh, I, I love the art here. The art was great. Also, Merlin think, Merlin being involved and uh, like that's the, all the, that's all straight up from the Etrigan um, side of things. Um, um, Green Arrow and Speedy being involved as like adversaries. Fascinating. Yeah, fascinating. This was just really solid altogether, you know. Like I really liked this one. I almost wish I could get more Speed Demon. I love the design, uh, particularly of the Blaze Allen Speed Demon. I think that is just such a great design. It really works in the context oh. of the story. Harvey love... Osborne, come on! Harvey Osborne as the Green Goblin oh. is fantastic. Yeah, and him not being the direct adversary, but like this person caught in the middle was fascinating. Yep. And I love how they do the the whole Barry Allen Wally West thing here, basically, where they actually, you know, they end up by the end of the issue being, you know, sort of partners. But then you have this 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 lingering question at the end of if if you know Blaze Allen has been has been bound to Etrigan the Demon, then who in the world has Wally West been bound to? Like, there's such great intrigue. It's a great cliffhanger. I really like this one, even if I know that some things don't hit uh, as, as good as they should. There's just something about this book that I just really, really like. The base setup um, and, and the way the characters interact. A lot of the amalgamations are really on point here, as you already mentioned. I just really like this one. It's this is out, out of this collection. This is one of my two favorites. Yeah, I, you're, I, I hope you're seated, which I think you are since we're recording. This might be the strangest on ramp to it, but I, I think I want to read some some flash books now. I'm going to tell you something too, though. Uh, this just reminds me that I have such a good pitch for, for a Ghost Rider story. I've been sitting on it for years, man. I have such a good Ghost Rider idea. <laughs> like Every time that I just even brush against that character, I'm like, I, I really got something that would be awesome if I ever would get a chance to write for Marvel. Like 
like I got some for Ghost Rider guys. I really do. It would and, be really and what something. I and what I enjoy about when I do read Ghost Rider things, it's so much more than the prototypical like sometimes you can stereotype Ghost Rider fans as like the same type of Punisher fans as like this hyper masculine energy of like bro like metal music. You can you can explain so much of that away, but what what makes Ghost Rider more approachable of a character is the aspect of the occult and spirituality and the willingness to go there um, in a comic is much more fascinating to me. Oh yeah, absolutely. All right, that brings us to our second to last book, Spider Boy by Carl Kessel and Mike Rowingo. Here we go. Uh, official tagline, he's the world famous web-slinging superstar. He can stick to walls and his crash pad is the Baxter building. Not bad for a teenage punk. Now two obstacles loom in the path of the amazing Iraq kid, Bizarnage and King Lizard. Uh, this is the other one of my two favorite books out of this, but there is a particular reason for it. I'm not sure if this one resonated with you quite as much as it did with me, um, but I'm very interested to hear your take, man. This is a good cover band, Dave. That's what this comic book is. This is a good tribute or a tribute band even. Uh, of like the, the two popular characters and like this is like the most clear cut like I get from a marketing perspective two of their most popular young quote unquote hip for the time period characters of course they're going to amalgamate them um, there was some interesting things that developed here um, Thunderbolt Ross being the uncle was definitely a curveball the fact that they like they have the Hulk's world kind of mixed in here as well was was an element that i was not anticipating i thought it was just going to just be a straight two into one amalgamation but that was a pleasant surprise so there was some stuff here that was like playing the hits um and it wasn't quite as meaningful but like i overall enjoyed it well the reason i think it resonated with me so strongly is because a lot of what is going on here in the base setup is less spider-man and more superboy um so i i read you know the original uh carl kessel run on superboy after the death of, of superman you know and the return and then they launched a superboy book and so you know a, a lot of the base setup here feels superboyish and i'm kind of admittedly nostalgic for that era in in connor kent's life um he, he was just a very different character back then to what he eventually became um, particularly uh, Jeff Johns did a lot to change him as a character uh, on his Teen Titans run. And and this version of, of Superboy is is really near and dear to my heart, just as this punk kid who's trying to become famous, you know, and at the same time is really trying to live up to the S on his chest, you know? Also, I think you, you kind of missed the uh, the real headline here, and that's that they amalgamated the two, the two clones, right? Yeah. <laughs> Superboy and Ben Riley Spider-Man. Um but uh you that know, logo there's... that logo on his chest is chef's kiss though it really is right there is there's a lot of cool stuff in this book i think it's almost overstuffed i mean we also have an appearance of the fantastic challengers of the unknown right the fan the fantastic form oh of the oh unknown. here's oh sorry here's my favorite part i've injected evil dna what is evil, evil dna, DNA? Still do not know. But again, this is this is very much the Superboy stuff, right? Because Superboy wrestled a lot with, you know, I'm a clone of Superman and somebody else. And is that other person bad? And what does that make me? And and so they had to throw that in there somehow. Um, Otto, Otto, of, Octav- Otto Octavius as like the, the lowly the assistant. Guy. Yeah, as a lowly assistant. Like, 
was was a choice and interesting, intriguing. Yeah. I'll give it that. And you know, here here is uh, the real hammer. I think uh, if if you know your your Superman lore a little bit, um, okay, a lot of it. I will admit, um, I really love the ending when the Mary Jane character shows the up. The insect been, queen, yeah, that was. Great. And she's been amalgamated. She's been amalgamated with Lana Lang, the other notable redhead, right? Because Lana Lang was at one point in the comic books a character called the Insect Queen. So we got we got Mary Jane and Lana Lang getting getting uh, amalgamated here. I thought that was such a deep cut, you know, to bring an insect queen here. Um, yeah, I really like this book. I like this book for how how it makes me, you know, nostalgic for the old Superboy book. Um, I like the way the Spider Man elements were sort of integrated. I thought this one was just was just very high energy fun right it just reminded me how fun uh connor kent used to be as a character i'll probably if if and when i do dive into that i'll probably have a greater appreciation for this book um for, but for what it's worth like it did remind me of those early spider-man comics that uh especially like that lee ramita era maybe even a little lee ditko probably and you know what actually probably a little bit more lee ditko um but but yeah it was it was fun for sure all right, this last one that we have is going to be the hardest one for me to really say anything about, even though it also fe- features Carl Kessel uh, in, in the writing. This one was weird to me. And, and Barbara I, Kessel as well. Yeah, I, I struggled with this one, man. So we have X-Patrol number one uh, by Carl Kessel, Barbara Kessel, Roger Cruz, and uh, Jan Holdridge. Um, and uh, here we have the official um, tagline. Pharaoh Man, Elastigirl, Dial Husk, Niles Cable, Shatterstar Fire, Beastling. Six outsiders unite for the first time to face the dreaded despot known as Dr. Doomsday. Uh, before you say anything, I don't even give a crap. Dr. Doomsday is an amazing amalgamation. <laughs> Freaking Dr. Doom and Doomsday, just yeah, because they right. both share Doom in their name. I'm there for it. I, I don't care how cheesy that is. Dr. Doomsday was awesome. But other than that, I don't know, man. What do you think, Chris? Uh, you nailed it when in our text thread. It's forgettable. Like it, the only thing that's that's memorable is um, Shatterstar Fire is Sh- Shatterstar Fire is super hot. Like I I had a counter of like the butt shots um, that were it was it was pretty egregious. She inexplicably has Shatterstar's like headgear and shoulder pads, but then the rest is just Starfire. Um, this is, this is an amalgamation of all the worst nineties tropes, I think in comics, it's the, the Rob Liefeld of amalgamations. This is like just X-Force with a little bit of Teen Titans sprinkled in. Um, you have Beast Ling, I think was his name, but it's like the amalgamation of Beast Boy and the, and Beast from X-Men comics. Um, he sex- sexually harasses, uh, you know, Shatter Starfire right off the bat, just like no shame. Um, and then it's just, it's it's so forgettable. Like it's it's so like nineties. It's that's the biggest thing I can say about it. Like some of the characters' designs are cool. The Colossus amalgamation character, Pharaoh Man, terrible name. We get it. F-E is the periodic symbol for iron, but Pharaoh Man doesn't do it for me. The design is cool, um, almost makes him look like a luchador, 
Um, <laughs> yeah, it kind of does. And then, like, whatever they're doing with Cable, there might be a DC character that I'm not. Cable is the most eye-rolly character in all of comics. If we could jettison him, that'd be cool. Um, I just, I don't even know, man. Like, yeah, it's it's a it's a comic book that happened. It's a comic book that happened. Uh, thank you, because that is exactly what I was going to say. I I did not. Doctor Doomsday like looks cool. Say that. Doctor Doomsday was the only good thing about this book to me. Like the rest, just is so forgettable. I've already forgotten it. Like that's the other thing. Like it's it's X Patrol, right? So it's like the Doom Patrol is in there, but for some reason it doesn't have that Doom. Oh, Patrol I didn't even vibe, make that connection. You know? Duh. You know. Yeah. And and some of the characters don't really make sense for Doom Patrol. Like for example, uh, you know, Beast Boy was you know a Doom Patrol character for a while, not just a Teen Titans character. He kind of bounced back and forth. But why is Starfire here? Starfire, as far as I know, has never been part of the Doom Patrol. Part of the Doom Patrol always was that these are people that are like real outsiders and messed up and and can't really integrate into into you know regular society. And then you got like. You know the hot tam- uh, princess from tam- uh, Tamaria or something on there. It's just like, it makes no sense, right? So that is it feels a little bit. Yeah. In that sense, it almost feels a little bit like um, like assassins did, in that it is um, very much feels fun. a lot like the leftovers being amalgamated. Like here's a bunch of characters we're just going to have to amalgamate because we don't know where else to put them. If that makes sense. Yeah, just not so, as egregious. Yeah, there's some generation. Yeah. There's some generation X and X Force here. Generation X being Paige Guthrie, Husk, who could just instead of her 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 innate mutant ability is a little bit gross. She can peel off her skin and uh, like just have whatever type of skin she needs, so she can have adamantium skin she could peel that off and if she's in another situation she can have kryptonite skin if need be if we're making an amalgamation but she just like morphs like mystique level like she doesn't even pull that off like it's such a weird and then you have like janet van dyne a marvel character being amalgamated with uh domino a marvel character It, it was weird yeah yeah this one is just deeply forgettable so if you had to like uh, give a final verdict on these six issues from uh, the Marvel side of things, what are your thoughts here, man? Of these six right here, give me Speed Demon, man. Give me Speed Demon. Maybe I'm more into the occult than I let on between this and Doctor Strange Fate. But like that was that was the most enjoyable far and away. Wasn't even close. There are elements and, you know, maybe if I were to revisit Spider-Boy with more context, I'll appreciate that deeper. Also... We're in 2023, and I've made my feelings clear about the new Spider-Boy. Um, and so maybe that has skewed my opinion as well. Yeah, when that Spider-Boy book was announced, a whole bunch of old older comic fans went on, on, on Twitter and were like tweeting at Dan Slott like, there already is a Spider-Boy, dude. <laughs> and, <laughs> Which I and, thought you was know, hilarious. He came on and, uh, in textbook Dan Slott fashion. I swear, there, there can't be a more like coin flip of a creator because some of the stuff i really dig and some of the stuff that he stands up for i wholeheartedly support him but then like it's dan slot at the end of the day <laughs> <sighs> so it's a complicated feelings yeah, yeah. um yeah. So, yeah. So, so, so if dan slot wrote for one of these amalgam comics then i think it'd be a perfect choice because i'd feel conflicted <laughs> about it <laughs> It's funny too because if you're looking at the second set of issues, the ones that Marvel put out, they're they're definitely 
on the weaker side. It feels almost like the DC side of things, they were much higher flying, but then they also had probably the biggest failure out of the bunch. So maybe they were greater risk takers in their approach. And, okay, and these help me out here. Fa- played help, it safer. I don't know. Other than Howard Mackey and, and Sal LaRocca, none of these jumped out at me as being like main, like Marvel mainstays, creator-wise. It's interesting, yeah, because Carl, I know Carl Kessel was writing, and Chuck Dixon both were uh, writing extensively for DC. Gerard Jones had been involved in Green Lantern for a little while before Ron Mars took over. A Strander is more, of a, more closely associated with Suicide Squad. So... Um, yeah, I don't know what the state of the industry was and if these people were doing more Marvel than DC work at this time. Um, but, you know, like the stuff that I know them from, obviously, because maybe because I'm just more of a DC head, are mostly DC things. I don't, I don't reckon, I, I, and, and what I do know of them, I know them for DC. Like even, like Howard Mackey, I know from Clone Saga. And say what you want about the Clone Saga. I don't think like the actual scripting and writing was the weakness. It was the indecision of going back and forth on who's the clone and what have you. I don't think the writing, the scripting was a problem. No, so I Howard Mackey is the only like scribe, at least. I don't want to make it one-sided when it comes to the writing, but like maybe that's why these were underwhelming is because maybe they didn't have a grasp of the Marvel counterparts of the characters other than... maybe. Because I superficially, I, I, yeah. I feel so underwhelmed overall when it, yeah, you know, as a Marvel. I movie. mean, as a whole, I think that if you look at the twelve amalgam books that they put out as a whole, I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on. It just seems that when they collected them, the the, the six that fell on the DC side were, were maybe five out of the six were really significantly better. I think. I think if you if you if you swapped out Spider Boy for Assassins, the DC side of thing, because Spider Boy feels a lot more DC ish than than Marvel ish for some reason. Um, I think the DC collection would be like the home run, and the Marvel collection would be sort of the island of misfit toys with really only Speed Demon, you know, sticking out as a solid solid effort. Yeah, yeah, I I, I wholeheartedly feel that. I think also just gives me. I think this entire experience, man. I said it last week and I'll say it again. Ron Mars and Mark Wade, they know how to cook. And they I'll do, and they still do. The ends of the earth. And they still know how to cook, let me tell you. Some of the recent stuff is still really good, too. All righty, folks, there you have it. Uh, next week, we are going to revisit the whole uh, amalgam concept one more time uh, as we discuss who we would amalgamate these days uh, if. Uh, DC and Marvel decided to do this experiment again. I think it's going to be very, very interesting and uh, would love to hear uh, your thoughts on that topic. You can find us on uh, social media at Nerd by Word or individually at That Nerd Dave and at That Nerd Chris. I think uh, next week is going to be a particularly interesting discussion. Um, before we go, though, we, are, we have one more break. And I don't know if you noticed, but uh, the calendar says it's October which means it's time for Nerd Nightmare to return. Stick around. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Uh, As you know, in the month of October, our nerd commendations take a break as I, Dave, a very long, in, in years, fan of the horror genre, uh, decide to introduce Chris the big chicken, to a whole bunch of scary movies. Yes, it's back. It's time for... Nerd 
And this week, Chris is being introduced to a true cult classic, and that is 1981's The Evil Dead, written and directed by Sam Raimi, starring Bruce Campbell as Ash Williams, Ellen Sandwise as Cheryl Williams, uh, Betsy Baker as Linda, Teresa Tilly as Shelley, and of course, Ted Raimi under a whole bunch of old lady makeup. Here is the tagline of the movie. Ashley Ash Williams, played by Bruce Campbell, his girlfriend, and three pals hike into the woods to a cabin for a fun night away. There they find an old book, the Necronomicon, whose text reawakens to dead when it's read aloud. The friends inadvertently release a flood of evil and must fight for their lives or become one of the evil dead. Ash watches his friends become possessed and must make a difficult decision before daybreak to save his own life in this, the first of Sam Raimi's trilogy. Also, Sam Raimi's first movie and probably one of the most famous indie horror movies ever made. Chris, was it a little gross for you? So here's the trade-off. I'm willing to subject myself to this every October. You're going to have to click that pen because we pride ourselves on our family-friendly rating. And we push that boundary with this episode, with this film. Okay, here's the pen. Let's do it. This movie's disgusting. (laughs) It looks like the inside of a diaper after a stomach bug. That's that's the greatest takeaway of this. Um, I can definitely see, you know, one of the benefits of being a part of this podcast and kind of picking creators' brains, yourself included, is you kind of see tendencies. Um, I I like to think that I'm much more uh, well-informed when it comes to things like this. Um, The Raimi-isms, if you will, even something as recent as um, Dr. Strange. Quick cut close-ups. Quick cut close-ups. Yeah. So that was interesting to kind of see like the origin of that, if you will, as... As an ancient history fan, I like the origin, the etymology, the birth of things and and how they were developed. And so that was an interesting aspect to clear. Uh, It just left me feeling super gross. I had to shower afterwards because everything was (laughs) grody and nasty. Cool note, this was filmed about an hour from us, Dave. Um, So that was cool to see. Um, because if you um, want to be in a, if you want to be in the scary woods, you obviously want to be where we live. (laughs) Yeah. So that, I don't know if that was comforting or not. Um, (laughs) I don't know how to feel about this one. (laughs) Um, you know, listen, as I said, as a fan of ancient history, getting a nod to ancient Sumeria and the cradle of life, um, not cradle of life. That's Laura Croft. Um, the Fertile Crescent, excuse <laughs> me. My brain's fried now, reading crappy comics and, and watching this uh, late into the wee hours of the night and the morning. Uh, I felt like I was Ash Williams in some respects, fighting off um, Magneto and his metal men and uh, 90s tropes galore, and then and then following that up with this. Um yeah, it was it was um an interesting development. Um I can you can definitely see from the onset and and I I have the benefit of hindsight that Bruce Campbell and Sam Raimi are kind of tied at the hip 
you know, him showing up in Multiverse of Madness, him showing up in the Spider-Man trilogy and cameos and stuff. Um, also, one of like the connective things, I'm a huge, huge, massive, massive fan of The Impractical Jokers, one of my all-time favorite shows. Just you want to just sit down and have a good time, have fun. And uh, Brian Quinn, one of one of the mainstay uh, cast members on that, is a huge Evil Dead fan, and so one of his punishments was to have to go through like Bruce Campbell came on to like help punish him. And like, so I saw like that. So like he made him (laughs) go through the stunts that Bruce Campbell would have to go through and stuff like that, or, or the stunt double or what have you. So I had some, some previous knowledge of this, but yeah, the biggest takeaway is this one's just gross. And I think he gets a chainsaw hand in subsequent films. Um, In the second one. Yes. Yeah. um, uh, Oh, the other one. Is like it's interesting because is this intended to be a satire? You know, I'm not sure. Um, it, it doesn't. So it doesn't become really satirical, I think, until the second one. That's when you start getting a little bit of the Sam Raimi um, humor in there, and then by the third one, Army of Darkness, it's basically the prototype for what would become um, Hercules, the Legendary Journeys, and Xena Warrior Princess, which are both you know Sam Raimi produced series, right? That style of action and that style of humor is basically what you find by Army of Darkness. It becomes less horror the longer you go. Out of the trilogy, I think fans generally agree that the second one is the best because it balances that that satire and humor with with what they do in the first one, sort of the gross out horror, um, really really well. And to me, the second one. Definitely, it's the better movie. Um, but it is it is fair to remember that this was a very very low budget movie. I think it was made for like three hundred thousand dollars or something like that. Um, and they did some really cool stuff in this movie with that. At least in my opinion, I really liked like the the uh, point of view shots of like the possessing spirits and how they go through the woods and that that low drone that it makes. That's a great tension builder. Um, and and let's be honest, the scene in the woods with the tree is 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 with the vines is like really 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 disturbing and, and tension producing. Yeah, for sure. There are there are things in here besides the gross out that are real great tension builders. Um, and I think no, they, yeah, I, I, that's that's a big thing. It was like the almost like the Hitchcockian, if you will, like yes, suspense of like will they won't they do this thing um, was fascinating to see. Um, the reason I ask, was it a satire? Because if not, then it might be like, again, we're kind of punting backwards to 1981. This might be like a, a watershed moment in the development of horror movie tropes. And I don't know if that was intentional or not, or like contextually speaking. Um, and I say that to say just this white people doing dumb stuff in horror movies, (laughs) like get out of the, when you drive across that bridge. And you barely make it across. Like, at what what point do you think that this is a good idea to continue? At what point? Right there. From the <laughs> onset. None of this is going to end well for you. Okay? I, your girl, I, I your girl say, and your baby sister and your buddy Steve. Not happening. I will say that it would be interesting. Perhaps, you know, we're not going to do like an Evil Dead retrospective, but perhaps next year to do part two, because it is it's really one of my favorite movies I've ever seen. It's just such a great experience to watch that one. But I think this is a much more Evil Dead one is a much more seminal moment 
um, as far as horror goes. I mean, if you put yourself in 1981 and you watch something this gross out, you know, in, on the big screen, that was highly unusual for the time. And it got really strong reviews on the back of how far it was able to push the envelope. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think I think just personal taste. I think the the gratuitous gore, if you will, is just not my cup of tea. Uh, and well, gross, and, and know, I think and that's and that's I think the reason. It. And I think the reason it works for me in this particular movie is because of the practical nature of the effects and that it's makeup and everything. It a lot of when when you I watched a, the most recent Evil Dead movie, uh, Evil Dead Rise, and I walked away from it not liking it. Um, and it had nothing to do with the movie makers. It was very well made. It's a very well made scary movie, but it still retains this really over the top grossness. Only now it looks incredibly realistic, and I walked away from it feeling more disturbed than than like I got off of a really good, you know, horror roller coaster ride. You know what I mean? Like for me, a good horror movie puts those thrills on you and then you walk away at the end and you feel like you've been on a roller coaster. You know, there was that shot of adrenaline and you felt really good about going through the experience. And this time when I walked away from it, I didn't, I did not feel like I'd been on a really fun roller coaster. I just felt kind of weirded out and grossed out. And I think that maybe is part of the problem for me of more modern horror movies sometimes is that, you know, because the effects are become so realistic and so convincing that it is, it's not fun anymore to you know nudge somebody in the rib and be like hey i wonder how they did that you know that looks kind of cool now it just looks almost too realistic and so this one doesn't bother me in any way shape or form because i've tried to watch more modern ones and it's just it's become too realistic i think for my my tastes it's also been a full calendar year so maybe this i just have to reacclimate myself yeah (laughs) i i I do want one one final note one final note i just want you to pronounce for me uh, the actress that portrayed Cheryl Williams, because it's just going to make me happy. Oh, uh, I already closed that window uh, <laughs> on on uh, on on my uh, on my screen here. Uh, if you want me to go ahead and bring up the yeah. cast again, I can just do because that. that German accent is going to make me so happy. On oh, uh, last name, it's it's Sandweis. Uh, yes. Oh, it makes me so happy. It's basically basically translated means uh, white sand. <laughs> Love it. I love it. Oh. Yeah. It's Makes cool me think name. of my favorite Sound of Music song, Edelweiss. Ah, yeah. All right. Well, um, you survived your first experience, but don't worry. We got four more horror movies coming okay. up this month. So uh, it's going to be quite a Can't ride. Can't we just we talk about how much I love Starfield? We'll just make that the entire <laughs> month's feature. <laughs> we are actually going to revisit Sam Raimi again. Uh, one of his later horror movies when he returns to horror towards the end of the month. And I think that's going to be really interesting. We can kind of see how his tendencies have evolved. All right, folks, there you have it. That's uh, it for another episode of the Nerd by Word podcast. If you like what you just heard, get on your favorite podcasting platform, subscribe, drop us a rating, drop us a review, never miss another episode. We are available wherever podcasts can be found, including our very own spiffy website, nerdbyword.com. And if you have ideas for further episodes, the algorithms on all social media platforms are skewed because we refuse to pay for it. Um, you could find us, though, uh, at Nerd by Word on all social media platforms on Twix, uh, Instagram or whatever uh, 
things you might be following us on. You can also uh, email us for show ideas, unless you're one of the weirdos that are trying to get us to invest in Bitcoin as our current inbox, uh, nerdbyword at gmail.com. But as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd By Word is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.